Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. The book of 2 Corinthians in chapter number 2. Now, as you find that, I want to give you three other passages that I want you to mark. Maybe you could take a piece of paper or put a bookmark or put something there. We're going to turn to them a little bit later and we're going to do a comparison of the three. It's just wise just to have you find it now, then just have it resting. You don't have to search for it later. That allows us to dive right in and do an examination of all three of those. So we're going to start right now in reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but the other passages... I would like you to turn to would be Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, Malachi chapter number 3, Malachi chapter 3 and Mark chapter 1. I'll repeat those here in just a second, allow you to get a head start. Now again, we're going to lead up to those three texts and we're going to do a comparison of them and uh, show you uh, an important point. Uh, those texts once again, Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, Malachi chapter 3, Malachi chapter 3, and the gospel record of Mark in chapter 1. We'll be looking at those passages a little bit later. And when you find those, mark them, set them aside, so that way you could quickly flip through the, uh, all three of them. Uh, um, I'm giving you this ahead of time because I want you to freely be able to turn to one passage to another to go to each bookmark to look at them so we can see all three of them, what they say and how they work together. And of course, we're now in the midst, in the middle of a, of a series of how we got our English Bible. And the purpose of it is that we want to explain the evidence. We want to explain the history to give us encouragement that the Bible that we have in our hand is indeed the very Bible that God intended us to have. And we're trying to break it apart piecemeal, my piecemeal, trying not to hit the college course idea of it, but trying to hit a plain speak idea of it to try to bring us to the known to the unknown, to try to bring us to the idea where you as uh, folks who love the Bible can have some sort of at least being able to defend what you believe and why you believe it and not be confused when other people do use big words and try to do stuff that you could say, listen, I understand what you're trying to say, but I believe God's word and here's why. And so we want to try to be an encouragement and show you evidence and show you support. With that, we want to start with a jumping off text today. Speaking of 2 Corinthians <laughs> Sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. We're going to go ahead and read this text and we will return to it at the very end of it. But this is where we're going to start with today. 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. And notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse number 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 17. The Bible says this. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God. In the sight of God speak we in Christ. And if you happen to marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 2? 2 Corinthians chapter number 2 and verse number 17. Notice the phrase, which corrupt the word 
of God, which corrupt the word of God. And today we're going to take some time to explore where did these corruptions come from? What is the source of corruption as it began to have a spiritual battle between two lineages, two lines of Bible text? If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again as we come up to you now. And Lord, we're coming to a very important subject matter, to be able to hit the history, to be able to have a clarity and an idea of where these things come from. Where is this spiritual war come from? Is this just in our head or is there something real and tangible that we need to be concerned of? I'm asking again that it's not my wisdom, not my words, not my power, not my might, but it's by your spirit that you do this work. So the best I know how, I surrender myself to you now, that you would take my mind, my thoughts, my ambitions, my goals, my desire, I give them all to you and that you get your own work accomplished through your word, through the history, to have us have confidence of your word today. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you don't mind, let's kind of cover the beginning about these corruptions. Where did these corruptions begin? Let's kind of hit a history of it, but also let's kind of hit a review of some of the things that we hit. Now, previously in the sessions, we showed that the world of professing Christianity branched into two different directions in the first, second, and third centuries. We had the Christians that held to the Word of God and were doing everything they could for the Lord. They settled in Antioch, which was located in Syria. And we took a whole time of explaining about the headquarters of the New Testament church last time, putting a big emphasis on Antioch and their uh, part in history of preserving God's Word. Antioch became the headquarters of the New Testament church, moving it from its old headquarters of Jerusalem and becoming the center of the things of what God is doing in sending out missionaries, sending out Paul, and keeping the scriptures. Meanwhile, an apostate movement began to arise in Alexandria, Egypt. And we're going to speak about this in detail today, but in contrast, last time we spoke about Antioch. Now we're going to look at this other line and where did it come from? Where did these corruptions begin at? The one that started in the Western world in Antioch, these were Christianity in name only, but it was not according to the scripture. Now in about the 100s to 200 years after the apostles, men began to put together phony gospels and phony epistles, and in those fake books are found almost every false doctrine that shows up on the different denominations today. It's provable and researchable. A number of things also took place in the third century that affects the church today. What would these be? Well, first of all, there was the clergy laity system. This is something that began to develop in this time frame that changed and developed how churches operate today. Or, and when I'm saying churches, I'm now saying Christendom churches, not a New Testament church as it should be operating. What is these corruptions? Well, the idea that the clergy was elevated above the laity, the word laity just means the common people. And so it began to have a mindset that the clergy were super spiritual, we are close to God. And that you common folks, you can't understand spiritual things. You have to have some super religious guru to explain to you what God wants and what God says. And so there started to be a difference in opinion and evaluation and how things operated between the laity 
and the clergy, which by the way, that's spoken against. The doctrine of this idea of controlling the laity is rebuked and condemned in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. However, it became the standard in the Western or the African church and then eventually migrated to Rome and it began to be settled. And it still infiltrates much of Christendom today. In the next century, this became the pattern and the teaching of the Roman church. That there is a difference between the clergy and a difference between the laity. That the laity, you just sit here, shut up, do what we tell you. We'll tell you what the Bible says. Don't bother reading it for yourself. Something else that changed was the idea of church government. The political structure of the Roman Empire became the model of the church government, meaning that people began to pattern the church government polity after what they saw in the political government. Nowhere in the Bible do you find a democratic system, a republican system, or a voting system. Now I say that some Baptist, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> excuse me, some Baptist, uh, oh, what are the meetings? Monthly meeting, uh, finance meeting, just just started having a heart attack right there, but. There's nowhere found in the Bible. Now, let me also pause. I believe in accountability and we do different things to have accountability here. But this started to develop a system and this is going to start causing different corruptions as well. The church began to embrace the world and the world began to embrace the church in about the third century after the persecutions began to die down. (laughs) And so the church governments began to move from a biblical structure to a political structure beginning to model their stuff off what they see in Rome. Something else that we'll see is the pattern of the Old Testament rather than the pattern of the New Testament. Meaning that these churches are going to start finding things of the Old Testament and put inside of the church instead of following the New Testament pattern. The leadership structure and the worship structure of the church began to follow the Old Testament Jewish model rather than the New Testament Christian model. In the New Testament church... For example, we had communion that had all the believers at the table of the Lord. In the Old Testament script uh, practice, they had a sacrifice that the priest would go ahead and administrate and the people would have to go to the priest. Now this opened the door and paved the way for the Eucharist, which is an idea that the Catholics have now that said that they have to take mass and they have to receive it a certain way in order to go to heaven. And this is part of that system that began to pave their way. Now again, I'm just doing this in brushing strokes. Uh, We could definitely dive in and examine the corruptions of more of these, but that's not our purpose. We're just trying to show some of these corruptions and where they're leading to. Something else was the idea of church discipline began to be corrupted. Now, there was a class of Christians that were known at the time known as the penitents. Now, they consisted of people who had been excommunicated from the church and had shown signs of contrition and repentance, meaning that because of something they did, they had been ostracized, they excommunicated, but now they had gotten right and they wanted to come back. And so people had to figure out what they were going to do. Now this was all centered around the persecutions. When the persecutions of Rome began to come, many Christians denied the Lord rather than suffer persecution. Now let me take a pause. In America, 
it is much easier to say, oh, I would never deny the Lord. Let me tell you, until you have someone pointing a gun to you that says, listen here, I'm going to shoot you or you deny Jesus Christ, it is a different story. It's a different story when your family's being threatened. Now, again, don't be too hard on those folks. You don't know what you're going to do until the time comes. But there were some people who, when it came time, the persecutions came, they said, oh no, I'm not a Christian, I don't follow Christ. Uh, and because of that, they were spared persecution. Well, when the persecutions died down, these people wanted to come back to church. But <clears throat> there were church folks who did not deny the Lord, who didn't want to accept those people back into fellowship. Listen, I didn't deny God, and you want to come back after denying God? And they felt like they needed some sort of punishment to to rebuke them. You know, you can't come back unless you pay something, unless you prove, unless, unless you're punished in some way. Now, what happened is that there began to be a great divide. There was a group of people who wanted to accept these people back. And there's a group of people that said, there's no way we would ever accept those folks back into a fellowship. So in order to bridge that gap of thought, an idea of venial and mortal sins was developed, each one of them having a different level of punishment. For those of you who don't know that vernacular, the idea of venial sins are small little sins. And the idea of mortal sins is, oh no, you messed up really bad. And they begin to classify different sins. Now, <laughs> with the idea here, God hates all sin. We don't mind preaching against sins we don't participate in. But God hates all sin. All of them. Now, not all of them have the same consequences. We admit that. But God hates all sin. But at this time, they started to classify. And which each uh, different types of sin, if you wanted to come back, there was different punishments you had to endure to pay for those sins that you did. The clergy was given power to impose sanctions and punishments upon Christians who didn't measure up to their standards. So you went ahead and committed adultery. Oh, that's pretty bad. So this is what you have to do in order to go ahead and be right in my eyes and I'll accept you back. And that it's not the idea of the Bible at all. But this began to be developed and began to be uh, ratified and put into practice in those churches. Now the biblical example of proper church discipline is found in Corinthians. Some of the people in the, this time were living wicked lives and they needed to be church discipline. By the way, church discipline is not made for punishment. It is made for the purpose to let them know that they've messed up really badly and they need to get fixed so they could come back into fellowship. That was the purpose of it. It is always for the purpose of restoration. Now remember, we're living in America where people church hop just on a whim. But back then, to be part of a local church was something very important and something very, it, it was what you needed to help survive. So when someone had to be church disciplined, they were set aside. But the idea was, is that they thought about it. They couldn't have fellowship with other Christians. They didn't get all the protections, the, the encouragements, the things that came from being a member of the church. 
And so they would say, okay, what do I need to get right? I'd rather get right so I can get back into fellowship. Now in the book of Corinthians, when these people did repent, they were not only to be readmitted back into fellowship, but the book of 2 Corinthians teach those folks that they are supposed to restore such a one. That they're supposed to go and help them get right with God. That's our, ye that are spiritual, restore such a one. And so that's opposite of what was being happening there. They said you have to be punished. And until you're punished and then you do these certain things, then we'll go ahead and take you back. Here was the idea that you just needed to get right with the Lord. And then we would take you back and we want you to serve God alongside with us. What are some other changes that happened during this time of corruption? There was the introduction of celibacy, which we see how that's turned out. Uh, but this was not something that was found in the Bible. Even Peter, who's supposed to be the first pope, he had a mother-in-law. What a horrible position to have a mother-in-law not have a wife. That's just horrible. And so the idea of celibacy began to, to be developed. They began to have set days of fasting. And so guess what? We need 40 days for the weeping of Tammuz. And we could see different things that developed. That, that's something that put in. And then the use of the sign of the cross. We'll speak more about this later. But these are things that started to develop during this time. Now, all of this predates the Roman Catholic Church. This is important because sometimes we'll, some people say, you just hate the Roman Catholic. No, no, no. We're just checking out history and we know that Roman Catholic Church did not corrupt. In fact, the Roman Church came from the corruption. And so they were just a natural result of the corrupted uh, Christianity that had developed in the first, second, and third centuries. All right, let's start seeing some corruptions in the Roman government. So we see these corruptions start to form. Then we could see these corruptions actually become part of the Roman Empire, the Roman government. The fourth century uh, change gave way to all-out corruption. Between 303 and 311 AD, five edicts or proclamations against Christianity were issued by the Roman Emperor Diocletian and were carried out by his co-regent Constantine, as well as other trusted men of Maximum and Galerius, and they ushered in the cruelest and the most savage of the Roman persecutions. In fact, Diocletian killed so many Christians and burned so many Bibles that he actually put up a victory steel and said, I have defeated Christianity. Now, you had to kill a lot of Christians and destroy a lot of Bibles to go ahead and say, I've defeated. So this was an awful persecution that occurred. Now, after this... <coughs> or during this time, there were many martyrs. For the first time in Christianity, it was suppressed by a state. Now, Christians had been persecuted before, but this was the first one where it had an empire-wide, let's kill all the Christians. This was an awful persecution that happened. Then came the conversion of Constantine the Great, who, by the way, had worked for Diocletian. So, Constantine the Great is, in history, one of those watermarks that changes the events of the world. He ruled from 312 to 337 AD. In 311, he was facing a crucial battle against Maximus in the Battle of the Molivian Bridge. The night before the battle, Constantine saw a flaming cross in the sky with the inscription written on it, By this sign, 
conquer. Now there are two things that we have to understand at this time. At this time, first of all, Christians were never, never known by the cross. That was always a symbol of suffering and shame. Christianity was never known by the cross. But some German um, <laughs> barbarians were known by the cross. And it just so happened that the particular cross that he chose happened to be their symbol because he was trying to get them to join with him so he could beat the other people in battle. And it was a way that he could unify the German barbarians with those that were professing Christianity under his banner so he could win. Imagine that. And so he took this to be an omen according to legend. He saw this burning cross in the sky by this symbol you should conquer. Oh God is with me. What magical powers. There's no way I could lose. And he won the battle. And he attributed his success to the Christian God. Now, this is going to pay uh, uh, all kinds of future events. It's going to affect so many things from this one point. When he, Constantine, came to power in 330, uh, 313 AD, he issued the famous Edict of Milan, which granted freedom to all Christians and adopted Christianity as the state religion for the Roman Empire. Now, remember, Diocletian, the Roman before, destroyed all the Christians, or so he thought. And now, the next Roman emperor says, hey, Christianity is legal, and I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, sure, let's all be Christians. Pretty amazing. The situation went from Christianity being outlawed and persecuted by the state to Christianity becoming the state religion. Now, everyone who's not a Christian is now being persecuted in God's name, under the sign of the cross and the rule of Rome. And imagine that thousands of people started to profess Christ. I mean, what a great revival. I guess we're doing things the wrong way. Instead of passing out tracts in John and Roman, just take a flame floor, right? You know, a turn or burn. That's well, not how it's done. So these people, are they really making true professions in Christ being their savior? Not at all. They're just saying, we don't want to burn. We want to, we want to uh, get uh, favor with the emperor who claims to be a Christian. So sure, I'm a Christian too. And so a lot of people who were not saved begin to profess Christianity. Now, Constantine is claimed to be a great Christian by Catholics and Protestants, though it is very doubtful he was ever saved. In fact, the claim that he was a Christian is tied to the fact that he was sprinkled with water on his forehead while he, while he was laying on his deathbed. And so that's where they say, oh look, he's a good Christian. He got baptized before he died. So here are some changes in the professing Christianity under Constantine. He thought the cross to be magical and that the sign of the cross or the wearing of the cross or the placing of the cross on a building gave the wearer or the building supernatural powers. This is his belief and it began to be formed. Even so much so that even today people wear crosses as trinkets and they believe it is good luck charms. So much so that if I was to take a wooden cross and show everyone and break it across my knee, everybody go, oh, and expect lightning to strike me because they think there's some magical powers tied into it. Again, before the 4th century, Christians were never known by the sign of the cross. But he began to put power and superstition into it. In fact, later on, they had something called the Iconoclast Wars, which is actual fist fight wars, guns, you know, sword wars against people who said the cross has power 
And the ones that said, no, the cross is just a thing. It has no power. And they actually went to blows and had a big war breaking out just for the idea of does the pow- does it- is there magical powers inside of the cross? Thank you, Constantine. We appreciate that. And even today, people do still put the idea that there's power inside of an object, a cross. It is a good luck charm. It's something to bring us magical luck. In addition... Christianity became a state religion. This was the first time that Christianity had ever been a state religion. With this, churches were now filled with unbelievers. So, oh, I'm a Christian, we're supposed to go to church? Sure, I'll show up to church. And slaves were granted their freedom if they were baptized. So, remember at this time, the Roman um, Empire was made up of 75% slaves. So, sure, man, if all I have to do is... uh, Get my freedom by joining a church? Let's do that. And so people begin to join the church. Basically, we're trying to explain that the churches are getting filled with people who are not trusting Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Now, Constantine exhorted all of his subjects to embrace the Christian faith or die. So guess what people did? I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Unbelieving pagans joined the churches, and with it they brought their pagan beliefs and practices with them, while the churches accommodated them by Christian, uh, Christianizing their pagan beliefs. Oh, you want to worship the sun god on December 25th? Sure, we'll make that part of it. It's now Christian. Oh, you want to go ahead and serve the fertility goddess by hunting her eggs? Sure, we'll put that as part of our practice. And they begin to put all of that within the idea of church. Those are documented, and we could face them... These are pagan beliefs that had now just become part of Christian culture because they were trying to appease those lost people who were joining those churches. With Constantine, there was also the Council of Nicaea. This was the first of the ecumenical councils and it met in 325 AD. This was called for by Constantine, who was his honorary president, for the purpose of unifying Christendom. The major issue at the time was the Arian heresy named after Arius, the presbyter of Alexandria, Egypt, who taught that Jesus was the greatest created being. He was a God, but not the eternal, co-essential to God. By the way, we still have this today. The Jehovah's Witnesses still practice this. But this was an, a big controversy that began to spread through all the people. And they met this council together and they argued for days to try to figure out is Jesus God or is he not God? Is he a God or is he the God? And so they try to hammer this out. Constantine was the one who put it together so we could say, hey, let's stop fighting each other. Let's just decide. Is he God or is he not God? You guys tell me the answer and that's what the answer is going to be. Can you imagine having a discussion like that? Constantine also desired to produce an ecumenical Bible that would be acceptable to all Christians within his realm and would further his concept of imperial Christianity. We're going to speak about this next session, about this Bible and this idea of putting it together. Uh, But just giving this idea now that Constantine put this together. Once again, this is going to have lasting results that affect us today. So now let's move down the map and go to the corruptions in Alexandria. In Alexandria. In the ancient world, there were two main centers of Christendom that arose. We had in in Rome, we had the Latin or Western branch of professing Christianity. Then we had 
in Antioch in Constantinople, the Eastern School, which became Byzantine Christianity. Again, we're trying to trace that there are two different lines. One that's carried out by Rome, one that's preserved by Antioch. Then there's a third group that's found in Alexandria, Egypt, which by the way is going to influence Rome and its corruptions even more. Alexandria, Egypt had a large Jewish population. And with that Jewish population, they wanted to study more of the Greek culture. And it became the center of Greek Platonic philosophy. That word Platonic carries the idea of the word in there, Plato. Plato was one of the great Greek philosophers. And with this, the Jewish people wanted to mix their Greek philosophy and mix it with the Old Testament scriptures. And they developed a crossbreed of Greek philosophy and the Bible. And this began to be a great type of philosophy, school of thought, centered in Alexandria, Egypt. In the 3rd century BC, Alexandrian scholars went to work to restore the text of the ancient Greek poets and the writers, and just again a big emphasis on Greek culture. Then there was a school founded by a man by Plantonius in 180 AD for the purpose of training preachers and missionaries. Praise the Lord that someone's there trying to have a Bible institute, trying to train men and women for the ministry. However, this school was taken over by Clement, the presbyter, the pastor of the Church of Alexandria, who, by the way, is generally acknowledged as the founder of the Alexandrian school of thought. So he takes over this school and he now converts it to be more of the idea that we're mixing philosophy with the Bible. Clement is known as the father of Christian philosophy. Those are two words that really don't belong together in the idea of common sense of uh, the common meaning of philosophy. The follower of Clement was, uh, this is a big guy here, Antimantius Origen. He's known as Origen for short. This is the guy we're going to spend a lot of time on because it is his fingerprints that we find in the corruptions today dealing with the Bible. Origen eventually took over this school that Clement had turned to Alexandrian thought. It was Origen that took it over. And he ran the school for a long time and put a great emphasis in training other people about it. Now from this school run by Origen came the Western approach to Christianity and the Western approach of the Bible. Now let's kind of go back. That's an overview. Let's examine Origen a little bit more specifically. As a young man, Origen's life was trained dramatically dramatically in 202 AD. During the persecutions, his father suffered martyrdom. What a horrible thing to be a young man and to watch your uh, parents get killed, his father get killed for the cause of Christ. Now, even though he came from a Christian home, Origen himself had never accepted Christ. His family was now left destitute without his father and he grew up poor. But he had a brilliant mind. Clement of Alexandria was forced to flee his school in 203 AD. And guess what? 
at the age of 18, Origen became the president of the Bible school. Now, I don't know who, what you were like when you were 18, but do you think you were ready to be in charge of a Bible school, to train men and women for the ministry, to train them what the Bible had to say? I mean, at 18, he's now in charge, and he's going to be there for a long time to influence people. Now, we want to give him his due. He was a genius. He reading and writing and collecting extensively. He had a library, the library of the Gnostic Ambrosius. He had a huge library. Again, this is a time where a lot of people don't have books, don't have access to paper, and he has a huge library. He had a great influence of thought. He studied under a pagan by the name of Amenaeus Sacus, the founder of Neoplatonism. What is that, by the way? It's the philosophical study of Plato. Again, you're seeing this idea of Plato come up over and over and over again and the influence by those people who uh, studied Greek philosophy. Now, <laughs> let's start studying a little bit more about uh, Origen. He lived a life of an extreme ecstatic. What do we mean by that? Well, he never wore shoes. I don't want to be comfortable. I want to just go ahead and go through life just dependent. He slept on the bare ground. I meant my back won't handle that, but good for him. He read in the New Testament where some men had made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, so he decided to castrate himself. Now, it may change his position in the choir, but it did not make him any closer to God. He was a Gnostic, meaning that he did not believe that Jesus Christ came in man form. He believed that there was a separation between God and Jesus Christ. That if Jesus was of spirit, he could not have come in the body. He was a Platonic philosopher, meaning that he grabbed his philosophy from the school of thought of, of Greek philosophy. He interpreted the Old Testament in a mystical way. Again, he didn't believe the Bible literally, so he had to interpret it mystically. That these are mystical stories, they're allegories, they're things that, that you have to figure out and study for yourself. Dean Bergeron, who was a great defender of biblical truth, said about Origen, Wherefore, therefore, or wherever, therefore, grammatical interpretation produced the sense, and Origen's opinion was irrational or impossible, according to the philosophy that he learned in Alexandria, he departed from the literal sense. Well, let's go to Origen's own words. What did Origen say? He said, The scriptures are a little use as they're written. That's a nice guy for someone who's teaching people about the Bible. Ah, the scriptures are little use. And this is going to pop up quite a bit. Now again, is this the type of guy that you want to get your Bible from? Probably not. What do we mean that he denied biblical thing? He didn't believe the literal sense. Well, he denied the Genesis account of Adam and Eve. He said that was just a mythology. It was just a story. He believed that souls existed from eternity past. Meaning that there was a former life and that our souls had existed that were ancient. He believed in the transmigration of the soul. That one soul would pass to a higher or lower form after death depending on one's deeds. We call that reincarnation. He believed in reincarnation. He believed in an eventual universal salvation that the wicked would eventually be saved after punishment in a purgatory type situation. After that, they would be instructed by the angels. Are you starting to see some of the things that are now coming up today? This is from Origen. 
He denied in a physical resurrection, meaning that you are not going to come back in a physical body. When you die, you're just coming back in a different thing, but you're not coming back in a physical body, which kind of made reincarnation a little bit difficult. He believed that the stars and planets had souls. That's interesting. He believed that the devils would eventually be saved. He was the first to refer to pastors as priests and said that bishops and priests participated in the forgiveness of sins. That as clergy, they had the power to forgive people's sins. Thank you, Origen. He said that the people who would have to be lost for a time were those who were never baptized. So if you weren't baptized, you're going to be lost when you die and that you're going to have to, um, have to endure for a while until you get things fixed. He also believed in the post-millennial return of Christ. Now here in this church, we preach a lot about premillennialism, that we believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back and that he is going to rule and reign for a thousand years. Origen believed that they had the responsibility to make the world perfect so Jesus could come back. That's the idea of post-millennial, that we have to make the world perfect. Uh, that This is where, by the way, today, this comes up in what is called the social gospel. That if we help the homeless and do this and make the world better and we fix the environment, that Jesus Christ will finally feel comfortable and feel like it's home enough that he'll come. That's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. But this is what Origen believed. Origen produced a book called the Hexapola. Now, this is going to be very important. This is going to be his crowning work in one of his influential books, this Hexapola. This is a book that had six columns on each page. So if you can imagine, you would have like a scroll, and on the scroll it had six columns. And each one of these six columns had different information. What was in the six columns of this Hexapola? Well, the first column was the Hebrew Masoretic text. This is the text that our Old Testament Bible comes from. This is the good text. He had access to the good text, and it was written on this first column. In column number two, it was a Greek transliteration. So instead of translating the word, he just took the Hebrew word and put a Greek ending on it. So it was just <laughs> Greekified, but still in Hebrew. In the third column, it had a Greek translation from Aquila of the Sinope from 130 AD. This was a literal translation of the Hebrew text. So this guy said, I want to translate Hebrew to Greek. And so he did a literal translation. On the fourth column, it was a Greek translation from Semenicus, which was an updated form of Aquila's work. So you had in the third column a translation. The fourth column was an updated work. And in the sixth column was an updated work of that updated work. But the fifth column is what we're going to put our attention in. It was something called the Septuagint. The Septuagint, for those of you who have a little bit of Bible study, uh, this would be a word that should ring in your ears. It's often referred to. Let's see what the Septuagint really is. The Septuagint was Origen's work. We're going to put that, underscore that right now. This is Origen's work. This is about 250 AD. That's going to be important to our story here in just a second. But this is Origen's work. That the Septuagint did not show up anywhere in history until it showed up in Origen's Hexapila. He called this work the 70 or the LXX. <clears throat> 
Origen claimed this work to be the Old uh, Testament Greek translation that was produced by 72 scholars. Now, how do you get 70 out of 72? I don't know, but this is the story he told. That 72 Hebrew scholars got together about 250 a or BC. So 250 BC, according to his story, these scholars got together and they wanted to translate the Old Testament scriptures into Greek. That's fine, but it didn't happen. It actually was written in 250 AD under Origen. And we're going to explain this in just a second. Origen made this up. He took the Old Testament uh, scriptures and translated into Greek and revised the text to match his philosophy and the philosophy of Plato. Let me show you what he did. When Origen came to a scripture that prophesied the virgin birth, something he did not believe in, he would rewrite it. And he would change this idea of the virgin birth. If he came across something that made reference to God being manifest in the flesh, which is something he didn't or could not believe being a Gnostic, he would rewrite it. So he would rewrite the Old Testament text. Our Bible comes out of the first column. All the new Bibles come out of the fifth column, the Septuagint, this work where he purposely rearranged the writing. This fifth column became the basis of what we now call the Alexandrian text. So now we're now defining that we have two different text lines. We have the Antiochian text, which comes from Antioch of Syria, that sent out missionaries that preserve the text. And we have this Alexandrian text that comes from Alexandria, Egypt, which is from origin. He is the birth father of it. That comes from his corrupting of the text. May I prove what I'm talking about? I told you to turn to those passages. Would you please turn to them, if you don't mind? Isaiah chapter 40, Malachi chapter 3, and Mark chapter 1. And I want you to have it so that way you could quickly look at each one. And uh, we're going to show you a couple of cases. So that way it's just not me shooting words out. Let's look for ourselves. Malachi chapter 3, Isaiah chapter 40, and Mark chapter 1. Let's look at Isaiah 40 first, okay? Isaiah 40 and verse number 3. Isaiah 40 verse number 3. Notice what it says. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our Lord. Of course this is a prophecy about the forerunner of Jesus Christ. That is being made in Isaiah chapter 40. Now look with me, and if you don't mind, in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord. So notice in Malachi, it says, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way. Now look with me, if you don't mind, in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. It says, In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, now notice with me verse 10, 2, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which should prepare the way before me. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make, uh, make his path straight. Alright, so we can see in Mark chapter 1, it is referring to two different prophets. Isaiah and Malachi. So, Mark chapter 1 verse 2 is quoting Malachi. Mark chapter 1 verse 3 is quoting Isaiah. We could clearly see that, right? You guys still on the same page? 
when Origen produced Mark 1 verse 2, he said, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. So instead of saying it as written in the prophets, he said, as is written in the prophet Isaiah. Now, he, his reasoning was, was because Plato said that Malachi copied from Isaiah, but he didn't get the copy correct. So he messed up, he misquoted him, and so what he meant to say is what Isaiah said. If Malachi had gotten it right, he would have just said what Isaiah said. So because of that, he followed the lead of his philosopher influence and said, translate it, put it together, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So the Bible says as it is written in the prophets. Half of it's in Malachi. The other prophecy is in Isaiah. It's written in the prophets. So let's look at the RSV, the Revised Standard Version in English. Here's Mark chapter 1 verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Well, some people say, well, the Revised Standard Version is a liberal Bible. What does it say in a conservative Bible? Well, let's look at the NIV, what they call the conservative text. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. It's the same word. Now this is amazing because 99% of the existing copies that we have, all of them read as it is written in the prophets. So why did they put Isaiah in there when all the texts say as it is says in the prophets? Because their Bible comes from Origen and Origen said, Plato said that it should be Isaiah. This is the whole idea here, that Origen is corrupting things. Let's look at his notes and a different passage. Matthew chapter number 10, we have the story of the rich young ruler. And we're going to look through this text here, and then we want to see what Isaiah or what Origen wrote about this text, okay? Again, I'm trying to show you a snapshot of his mind. I'm not just trying to say that he's bad. I want to show you what he says and look at the text for ourselves so we can compare some. Now, by the way, anybody in that Mark passage with a brain could have went back and said, all right, I look in Isaiah. Hey, Isaiah didn't say this. Well, it's because Malachi said that. Why doesn't anybody catch that? Well, that expects them to read their Bible, something they're taught not to do. Matthew chapter 19, we come to the story of the rich young ruler. Matthew 19, verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? By the way, when you ask which ones, <laughs> which commandments are we supposed to keep? That's a good question. Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now remember in this passage, Jesus is dealing with an individual, not with a crowd. And here is an individual that comes up to him and says, What can I do to 
inherit eternal life. He wanted to know what he could do. Well, Jesus said, if you want to know what you could do, keep all the commandments. Well, which ones? Well, he, Jesus listed off a bunch of them. The guy says, since I was a child, I've done all of those. I've done my best. I've kept all of those commandments. Well, remember Jesus is dealing with an individual. And as he's dealing with an individual, he's trying to point out that this man is not perfect. So if you think you're perfect, then sell all your stuff, give them to the poor, and come and follow me. Now the reason why he said that is he because he knew possessions had possessed this young man. And so he was trying to point out that he was not perfect. And the man turned around and said, well, then that's not for me. And he walked away, not leaving anything, not abandoning anything, walks away. Well, Origen, when he goes to here and begins to translate, and remember, Origen wrote lots of books, not just the Hexopla, but he wrote other books. In his commentary on this passage in Matthew, this is what Origen had to say. Origen said that Jesus could not have concluded his list of God's commandments with the comprehensive requirement, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Remember, that Jesus Christ, someone asked, what is the greatest of the commandments? To love the Lord thy God. And then the second, to love thy neighbor as thyself. Which is the summary. Jesus didn't talk anything about loving God. He talked all about loving your neighbor. And so, he, Jesus, he, according to origin, Jesus could not have given this comprehensive statement that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. For the reply of the young man was, All these things have I kept from my youth up. And Jesus evidently accepted this statement as true. Well, again, Jesus is trying a different tactic to prove that this man was not perfect. Origen goes on and says, If this young man had loved his neighbor as himself, he would have been perfect. So therefore, Paul, Origen is talking about, Paul says that the whole law is summed up in the same, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So Origen is saying, no, 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 this guy, because he kept all the law, he must have been perfect. Jesus should have acknowledged that. But if Jesus answered, if thou will be perfect, implying the young man was not perfect. He says, Jesus accepted this guy was perfect. So, but there's no way that Jesus could have implied that this man was not perfect. Therefore, Origen argued that the commandment, thou shall love thy neighbor as thyself, could not have been spoken by Jesus on this occasion and was not part of the original text. That, no, no, this shouldn't have been in here. Someone made a mistake. They put that in there. This clause, he believed, was added by some scribe and should not have been a part of the text. Because of this, the older editions of the NIV have 17 verses missing about this event because the people putting the NIV together reasoned they should not be there. Because Origen said so. By the way, this is the influence of Origen. You're the scholar. You have the training. You have the education. It is up to you to fix the Bible. And this is that same philosophy that people have today. Is that we're smart enough. Let me tell you what the Bible says. This shouldn't be in here. Let's correct it for you. That's a problem. That's a big problem. Now, by the way, Origen was aware of the Byzantine Greek text because his writings contain many of their readings, meaning he knew what the Bible said. He had a Bible that had the correct stuff. But as he gave his commentary, he would say, ah, no, this shouldn't have been in here. This shouldn't be here. And he went through the whole into New Testament, all adapting his philosophy to the New Testament text. Now, Origen accepted the shepherd of Hermas and the epistle of Clement as being more inspired than some of the 27 books of our New Testament, meaning that he'd rather read the epistle of Clement than some of the other New Testament books. 
Now, if origin is commentating, now we're bringing up something that we brought up two or three sessions ago. If origin is commentating on and criticizing the New Testament text, how is it that people that embrace origin's fifth column as the text to which they build their Bibles on are still the same ones that teach that there was no collected New Testament in existence when origin was teaching? Remember that? Good. Just putting that back in there. They said we didn't have a Bible, then how is he criticizing the Bible if he didn't have a Bible? All right. So, let's kind of bring this to a conclusion. What are the conclusions based off of this study of the corruptions in Alexandria? Well, the Hexapola was a rendering of the Old Testament, but Origen's work on the New Testament was based off his work of the Old. So, the corrections he made in the Old, he would change in the New Testament to reflect that same view. This is what's going to show up in the other versions. In Antioch, you have the text of the true Bible, which we covered a lot last time. In Alexandria, we have a corrupt text of the Bible. The corrupt text then ends up spreading to Rome and is accepted by Rome and kept by Rome. Whenever Antioch sends out missionaries, they bring out the, new, the true text so people could read the Bible for themselves. Whenever the two meet, Rome attempts to snuff out the true text. We'll see that in upcoming sessions. Now, let's go back to 2 Corinthians 2. This is kind of where we started off. Let's go back here and I want to show you something. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17 our text, the Bible says, for we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. Now that's an important phrase in there. We're not as those that corrupt the word of God. This is a warning here that there are people that are trying to corrupt God's word. Now notice if you don't mind, let's look at the uh, liberal version, the revised standard version. Let's see what they do with this Bible, this, te this verse. <clears throat> Before I get there, uh, God is very careful to warn you in this passage about those that corrupt the word of God. I had just mentioned that. But let's look at the RSV. For we are not as so many peddlers of God's word. Now, I may I remind you that corrupt does not mean peddle. The idea of peddle means to sell. So in our Bible, it says don't corrupt the Bible. And they said, ah, we're just not going to peddle it. Okay. Well, let's see what the NIV says. The RSV is considered the liberal Bible. Let's look at the conservative Bible, the NIV. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word for profit. Oh, they added to it. By the way, liars, they do peddle the word for profit. May I prove that? Did you know that there's a copyright on the NIV? They do sell it for profit. In fact, they have a whole copyright page. I checked it the other day just to see what the updates were. They have a copyright page for Zondervan, the publishers in the NIV. And it has a whole list of what you can and what you cannot do with the NIV scripture text. Even a single verse. You cannot put an NIV scripture on a birthday card or a cup or a map without giving permission or giving profits to the uh, copyright holders. Well, that's a big deal, isn't it? Didn't they say that they weren't peddlers for profit? Well, that's their text. Well, let's look at a different one. We're in Colossians chapter 2. Look with me if you don't mind Colossians chapter 2. The book of... We were in Corinthians. Turn to Colossians, sorry. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to bring this to a head in just a second. I'm trying to build it up and trying to show proof and evidence of what these things and the differences are. Turn, if you don't mind, to Colossians chapter 2. 
And notice with me, if you don't mind, in Colossians 2 verses 6 and 7. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and builded up in him, and established in faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Verse number 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of man, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Once again, the Bible's giving a warning that we need to be careful with those who want to spoil us, to destroy us, to take what our faith from because of philosophy and not after Christ. Am I broken? Oh, sorry. Good. Now, are you helping me out, Serena? Okay, next. My thing died. Cool. Next. Next. Now, Plato, Philo, Clement, and Origen are all philosophers. Next. They are changing what the Holy Spirit gave to the apostles and gave us about Christ. Next. According to the schools in Alexandria, Jesus Christ was not Almighty God created. That's a big deal. All right? Good. I got it now. How do we know that philosophy has corrupted the teaching? If they teach that Christ is not fully God. That's our thing. The doctrine of Christ. What do they say about the Christ of the Bible? If it matches what the Bible says, then it's true. If they try to corrupt it and twist it and try to make it Jesus different, then that's a big deal. If you ever wonder why the NIV changes verses on the deity of Christ, it is because the NIV comes from the textual and manuscript background of Alexandria, Egypt, which was produced by men who called themselves Christians, but were influenced by philosophy and denied the deity of Christ. Now again, we're seeing that that it wasn't just minor changes or update changes. They did not believe that Jesus Christ was God. And it was reflected in their work. <clears throat> Why are... Good. Let's turn to another text. This is a big deal. And I want you to look this for yourself. So this is a battleground text. This is a text that is fought over quite a bit. This is important. And we're going to see the different philosophies on this one verse. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And I want you to see it for yourself so that way when we see the other text you can look. I want you to look with your own eyeballs and let you see what it says. It says, for there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. This is the clearest text of the Trinity found inside of the Word of God. Well, remember that these men did not believe that Jesus is God. So what do they do with this verse? Well, let's look at the RSV first. Let's see what the RSV does with this. It says, and the Spirit is the witness because the Spirit is the truth. That's what they say this verse says. What? That's kind of missing quite a bit, isn't it? Uh, modified? Well, let, let's kind of look at the liberal, we looked at the liberal one, let's look at the conservative NIV. For there are three that testify. That's it. That's it. 
That's a big change. Why do they have these changes? It is because they do not believe in the deity of Christ and their changes inside of their text is going to reflect that they do not believe in Scripture. They don't believe in this. This is a battle about who Christ is. This is the ultimate battle. It's not a battle of words or archaic words or updated words. It is a battle of the doctrine and the philosophy of Christ. This is a big change. Now we're going to build upon this later, but we had to build somewhere and we had to start by seeing where do these changes come from. It came from a man by the name of Origen who's going to leave his fingerprints all through these thousands of years and it's this text is this Alexandrian line of text are going to continue to be corrupting and transforming and bringing people away from what the Bible says and against the the God of the Bible. This is a big deal. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.